Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, B.C., we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Well, what a great service so far. Thank you so much to all the musicians, to the tech team, to everybody who made this whole entire thing come together. And again, a special welcome to you, no matter where you are watching from this morning. And a particular welcome if you are someone who's joining us because you saw our promotional materials and you're saying, yes, I've got questions about Christianity. Yes, I find the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this whole idea of this miracle, to be unbelievable. If that's you, a special welcome to you this morning. Uh, Obviously, that is what we want to talk about. And so we want to say right up front that the miracles of Christianity are key to them all, especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity rises or falls on the basis of whether these miracles actually happened in history. Even the Apostle Paul said this about Jesus' resurrection. He said that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In other words, if the miracle of Jesus' resurrection didn't happen, then all of Christianity just falls apart. That's how important it is. But of course, it's right here that so many people in our day and age have so many problems with Christianity. I mean, how could anyone living in the 21st century with even a high school level of education believe that a a dead man rose from the grave or that a, a man walked on water? I mean, of course, ancient people, we would say, could believe such things. But we living in our modern era, we with our scientific knowledge, we know a whole lot better now. So, for instance, today's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, was giving a speech. And he said these words, that any belief in miracles is flatly contradictory, not just to the facts of science, but also to the spirit of science. In other words, many people like Richard Dawkins, and maybe like you, if you're joining us today, would say, I find this whole idea of miracles, and especially the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, to be simply unbelievable. Well, if, like on our promotional materials, you'd say you are a skeptic, a doubter, someone who you'd say, I'm a scientist, I can't believe these things, or maybe you're just someone who says, I'm not going to be taken in by scams, I'm not somebody who believes in conspiracy theories or blind faith, if that's you, hey, this service is for you, this message is for you, and what I want to do is to invite you to come on a journey with me, a journey where I'm going to ask us all to consider three biases that we all have as modern people. And these three biases are what keep us from believing in any form of miracles, and particularly in this miracle about what we call the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want us to consider these biases and ask ourselves, are, are, are we smart to hold these? Are we wise? Are these good biases to hold? So join me on this journey on these next few minutes as we consider three biases that we as modern people have. First then, I want to begin by asking us to consider our bias against the supernatural. Our bias against the supernatural. And what I want to show here is that it is this bias that keeps us from believing in any forms of miracles. It is this particular bias, not the question of science versus faith, that keeps us from believing in something like Jesus' resurrection. This is, this is not an issue of science against faith. That's not what it's about. Rather, it is a question of naturalism 
versus supernaturalism. And which one of those you believe and hold to. So let's define our terms here. Let me show you what I mean. I'll show a picture that will first of all define naturalism, and then we'll talk about supernaturalism. So here's naturalism. Here's the picture. Notice that what we've got here is a box. In the box is absolutely everything that we would call the natural order or the universe. Notice that there's nothing outside of the box. The universe is the only thing that we have in this box. And so We could define naturalism with the famous slogan of Carl Sagan when he said these words, the universe is all there is or ever was or ever will be. So to define naturalism then, naturalism is the belief that the natural universe is the sum total of reality. There is nothing beyond the universe, just all of reality is the material universe, the natural universe. So then you can see, if this is your belief, if you're a naturalist, if you're like Richard Dawkins, then you can see why it's very hard or impossible to believe in miracles. And that's for two reasons. Miracles are impossible if you hold to naturalism because in the first place, there's nothing outside of the universe that can kind of have an effect within the universe. There is no God's supernatural powers. There's just the universe. So miracles are impossible on that level. And then secondly, everything that happens in the universe can be explained in terms of natural causes. You can see then why it's really hard, if not impossible, to try to convince somebody who is a naturalist that miracles actually take place. Because if you're a naturalist and you were to encounter, let's just even say for the sake of the argument, a true miracle, you wouldn't believe it. You would just say something like, well, my senses must have deceived me. Or you would say something like, well, I don't have an explanation for what just happened here, but I assume there is an explanation and that that explanation has nothing to do with the miraculous. Science could explain it even if I could not explain it. So within naturalism then, miracles are simply impossible. They do not happen. That's naturalism. Now let's talk about supernaturalism. Here again, we see the box that is the natural order, that is the universe. But in this case now, we have another reality that exists within and with outside the box, and that is God himself. So within Christian teaching, of course, God is the one who created the universe. God can act within his universe, and God lives above and beyond his universe. So here's how we could define supernaturalism. Supernaturalism is the belief that there is a supernatural, super meaning above and beyond. There is a reality above and beyond the natural order, that reality which we call God, that exists within and beyond the natural universe. So if you hold to this view that there is a God who exists above and beyond the natural universe, how does that affect your view of miracles? Well, we could put it this way. Miracles are possible because, of course, God is free to act within his universe. So take everything that we just said here, let's bring all this together and we'll put it this way. The debate about miracles is not actually the debate about miracles at all. It is actually the debate about the existence of God. That's actually what this is all about because Just think about this logically. If God exists, 
It is perfectly plausible, it's perfectly possible for God to act within the universe that he created. I mean, if he can create an entire universe, it's really no big deal for him to make a blind man see or to raise a man from the dead. That's pretty small compared to creating an entire universe. So if you want to say that miracles are impossible, then here's what you got to realize. You got to realize that you are actually making a very dogmatic claim. A dogmatic claim that says God does not exist. If you want to say that miracles are impossible, then you have to have an airtight case against the existence of God. Because again, if God exists, it's very possible and very reasonable to believe that he can act within the universe that he created. So in this first point, all I'm getting you to do is to just consider your bias. Consider your bias against the supernatural. If you say, I just, I cannot believe in Christianity and in, in this idea of this miracle of this resurrection of Jesus because it's impossible, just realize that that's begging the question. It's begging the question of, does God exist? Unless you can prove that he doesn't exist, all I'm saying in this first point is you have to be even open to the possibility that miracles could happen. If you even think that God might exist, you have to be open to the possibility that he could perform miracles within the universe that he created. So that's pretty basic just to kind of get us going, clear some of the ground, consider our bias against the supernatural. Now let's turn to a second major bias. I think this one might be even more important. This keeps us from believing in any existence of miracles, let alone the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. So in the second place, let's consider our bias against ancient people. Our bias against ancient people. Now, Now here's what I mean by that. It's very common to hear someone say, Oh, yes. I mean, I'm sure Christianity was once something that people could believe, uh, but times have changed. I mean, when we read the Bible, we're reading an ancient book, we're reading about people who lived in pre-scientific era. And so when we're reading them, we, we know that they were more inclined to believe in fantastic stories, miracle stories, like Jesus rising from the dead. They were inclined to believe those kind of things because, you know, they were more superstitious, Uh, And they did not have our scientific, our modern understanding of the way that the universe actually works. And so these ancient people, yeah, we get that they believed it. But we, we as those who live in a scientific age, we know better. That's our bias against ancient people. Now, of course, we want to say right off the top that these ancient people, no, they had no idea. They didn't know anything about TikTok or TMZ or Taylor Swift. And quite frankly, they were probably the better for it. But, but here's my point that I'm trying to say. They were, they were no more gullible towards miracles than we are today. This is what I want to show you. In fact, what I want to say is that they even had, they had many skeptics, many doubters in ancient times, just like we do today. So just think, for instance, of the story of Mary and Joseph. The Virgin Mary comes to Joseph, her fiance, and says that she's pregnant by the power of God. Do you think that Joseph said to his fiance, oh yeah, that's, that's really possible, I believe that. No problems at all. No, no, no. Joseph did not say that. Joseph knew where babies came from. He knows how babies get made. 
And so initially, anyways, he decided he was going to break off the relationship with Mary. And listen, the whole Bible is filled with stories of ancient people who were doubters, who were skeptics about any form of miracles that came their way or that people claimed. In a moment, I actually want to look at one specific story of one specific man who was an ancient man who had a lot of doubts and a lot of skepticism. But before we come to his story, I first of all just want to talk about culture in general to show that no, ancient people were not as gullible as we sometimes make them out to be. In fact, here's the claim I'm going to make and then I'll try to back it up. My claim is this, that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, ancient people found that claim to be just as unbelievable as many modern people do, and mark this, even more unbelievable than modern people do. They, were, they had greater doubts and greater skepticism about this claim of Jesus' resurrection. Here's why I say that. There were two main ways that people thought during the time of Jesus. The first way would be just the average Greco-Roman person in the way they thought. Remember, if you know your history, during Jesus' time, the Romans ruled the Western world of that time. And so everyone lived under the Roman Empire. Uh, They had Greek ways of thinking, so we call them Greco-Roman people. And the Greco-Roman people had many views, just like today, about what happens when a person dies. Some people believed that there was ghosts and spirits. Everybody had kind of some belief in an afterlife, but there was, just like today, some people who believed you just cease to exist when you die. But listen carefully, no one believed in resurrection. No one. Resurrection, properly defined, does not just mean life after death. That's not what we mean by resurrection. Resurrection refers to new bodily life after bodily death. It's to come to life in a new body. And no one in the ancient world believed that that was possible. Not only that, no one even wanted it to be possible because the average Greco-Roman person uh, followed the teachings of Plato, which come right down to us today, where the physical world and your physical body was It could even be corrupt. It might even be evil in some people's thinking. But just like today, a lot of people would say, the true you, the real you, that's your spirit. That's your soul. And so when you died, an ancient person would say that your soul or your spirit was freed from the prison house of your body. And once free from the prison house of your body, no one would ever want their body back. So if you were to go and try to talk about the resurrection with just your average Greco-Roman person on the streets of Jesus' day, they would say to you, what? No. Resurrection does not happen. It's totally impossible. And secondly, why would anybody even want that to be the case? It's ridiculous what you're talking about. So these ancient people were not inclined to believe in a miracle story about Jesus' resurrection. But I said there were two major cultural worldviews. The other one alongside the Greco-Romans was, of course, the Jewish people. Jewish people also had a a very difficult time believing in this whole idea of Jesus' resurrection, but for very different reasons than Greco-Roman people. You see, Jewish people reading the Old Testament believed that one day, God would indeed raise the dead. But when God did that, he was going to raise 
all of the dead at the same time on the final day when God was going to come to rid his world of all disease, suffering, death, and injustice. And so if you went to the average Jewish person and you said, hey, want to talk to you about Jesus and God raised him from the dead, the Jewish person would look at you and say, "Uh, look around you. Has death ended? Has disease and suffering ended? No. So clearly your claim about this resurrection is not true. So why I say all that is that when the first Christians claimed that God had raised Jesus from the dead, they were doing so in a culture where the average person did not believe such things and in fact believed that it was impossible, undesirable, and absurd. So these ancient people were not as inclined as we may sometimes think. Our bias is just simply wrong here. You you can read about this right in the New Testament. When Paul, for instance, spoke about the resurrection of Jesus uh, in Athens, which was the intellectual center of the ancient world, we read that people just mocked him. Another time, Paul stood before the John Horgan of his day, the, the premier of the province where he was, the province that he was in, The man's name was Festus. And when Paul began to speak about the resurrection to the premier, this is what we read. As he was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning, Paul, is driving you out of your mind. My point is then simply this. It is not true To say ancient people were more predisposed to believe miracle stories than we are today. Just like today, in the ancient world, yes, there were people who were gullible, ignorant, and superstitious. But just like today, there were also many people who were critically minded and highly skeptical of any kind of miraculous claim. And yet, despite their skepticism, many came to believe. So that's the ancient world in general. But let's, let's hear now one specific story of maybe the most famous doubter, the mo- most famous skeptic in all of history. In fact, we still use his name today to describe doubt. And of course, I'm referring to the man we saw in the video earlier, Thomas. Even today, we may call someone a doubting Thomas. That's how closely his name aligns with the whole idea of skepticism and doubt. And the Apostle John records his story for us in the 20th chapter of his book, which we call the book of John. And John records Thomas's story for all of us who just refuse to take a blind leap of faith. For anyone who says, I want rock solid evidence for my beliefs. For anyone who says, I want a rational faith. And John says, all right, I'm telling you Thomas's story for this. But John is unapologetic in saying, I'm telling you this story. That you too may believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. The one who's come to save you and that you may find life in his name. He's unapologetic about it, but he's going to tell us Thomas's story. And he gives us two reasons why We should consider believing in Jesus based on Thomas's story. Here's the first reason. John challenges us to believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the basis of what type of person Thomas was. So what kind of person was he? Well, let's read John 20 verses 24 to 25. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, being the disciples, the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, seen him resurrected after his death. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So when all these other disciples, his best friends really, start talking about how they've seen Jesus, that he's been raised from the dead, Thomas just simply cannot believe it. I mean, how gullible do you have to be, guys? Thomas knows there has to be some rational explanation for the whole thing. Now, Thomas often gets a bad rap for being a skeptic and a doubter, but I'm not sure that he should. Because really, Thomas is the kind of person who just refuses to be taken in by scams, by cons. He refuses to be tricked. He really is a critically minded kind of guy. And I think we should really appreciate him. Because even in our modern age, we know how people can be so gullible and how easily they can be taken in, how they can be tricked. Listen, especially by religious swindlers. People who con you in the name of God. Does the name Peter Popoff mean anything to you? He's older now, but he had a really famous and big healing ministry in the 1980s. I mean, packing out small arenas, thousands come to see him. And Popoff at his meetings, he would just do things like he would call out to his audience and he'd say, guys, God is giving me a name right now. Josephine Perino. Josephine Perino, you are here tonight. And Josephine, God is telling me that you have cancer of the stomach. Josephine, come on down. God is going to heal you this evening. And sure enough, to everyone's amazement, there was a Josephine in the audience. And she'd come down, and sure enough, she had been just recently diagnosed with cancer of the stomach. It all seemed tremendously miraculous. Then a man named James Randi, he's a world-famous magician, he came with his assistant, Steve Shaw. And he wanted to see what was going on because he liked to disprove people who claimed that they had actual mental powers or these kind of things. And so he's paying attention and he noticed that Peter Popoff was wearing a hearing aid. A little odd if you claim to be able to heal people that you have problems with your own hearing. Well, they also noticed that Mrs. Popoff was always at the door and she would greet people as they came in and she would give them prayer cards and ask them to fill them out. And those prayer cards would have things like, please put your address, give us your name, tell us what you're sick with and we will pray with you. And she'd have conversations with people. Well, James Randi and Steve Shaw brought in a radio scanner and at 39.17 megahertz, they heard the voice of God. Only God sounded an awful lot like Mrs. Popoff. And the first words that they heard when they found that frequency and they listened over the radio was, Honey, I'm looking up names now. That's when they knew they were on to something. And so they went in and they filmed an entire evening at one of his healing crusades. And the next night they went on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show, which if you're younger now, that's now the Jimmy Fallon show. This is old Jimmy Fallon. Uh, They went on the Johnny Carson show and they showed the whole evening, the Peter Popoff 
evening, they showed it twice. The first time they showed it as if you were an audience member and there was Peter Popoff miraculously calling out street addresses and names and sicknesses. And then they played it a second time with Mrs. Popoff's voice speaking into the earphone in Peter Popoff's ear and giving him the names of people, their ailments and their street addresses. Well, as you can imagine, after that, his ministry completely collapsed. But here's the crazy thing. That was in the 80s. In the late 90s, he started to make a comeback. And if you flip around your TV, especially in the later night hours, you'll see he's still there. And his big thing now is he's got healing water that he brought back from the Jordan River. And he will send you a vial of this water, which will heal you by God's power. Oh, and don't forget, just include a donation. Now, this kind of twisted thing reveals just how gullible people can be about claims of miracles, and it shows how easily our gullibility can be manipulated, especially if it's in the name of God. Thomas, though, is the kind of skeptic, and this is why I love Thomas. He's the guy who refuses to be swindled. He refuses to be conned. And he he wants a rational explanation. And notice, he asks for specific evidence that cannot be fake. First of all, he says, I must see Jesus myself. That would guarantee that it's not just some lookalike, you know, someone trying to pose as Jesus uh, in order to swindle everybody. Secondly, he says, I must actually see the scars and the imprints in his hands where they put the nails And I must touch him, which then would ensure that Jesus was not a ghost or a spirit because people believed in those kind of things. If he could touch his actual body, it also would ensure that it was Jesus because, listen, not all people were crucified with nails. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people, and oftentimes they did it with ropes. They'd hang people with ropes. Not everyone, of course, but this would narrow it down even further. If there were nail scars in his hands, if he could touch them, And then finally, he demands one piece of evidence that was unique to Jesus. He says he must place his hand into Jesus' side. Why is that unique to Jesus? Well, if you remember the story, the soldiers, as they were going along, they were going to break the legs of the three that were on the crosses. And why the Romans did that is that they were experts at execution. And experts at torture. You see, when you crucify someone, when they're up on the cross, in order to get a breath, they have to pull up on the nails on their hands and feet to take a breath, and then they go back down. Obviously, a great form of torture. But if you break their legs, then no no longer can they pull up, so they can't get a breath, and then the victim suffocates within a few moments. And so as the soldiers went along to break the legs of those who were on the crosses, they came to Jesus, and he was already dead. But the Romans, again were experts in execution. They left nothing to chance. And so just to make sure, one of the soldiers took a spear and drove it up through Jesus' ribcage and into his heart. So Thomas is saying, I must put my hand right into that indentation, into that scar, so that I can know that this is actually the Jesus who died on the cross. Thomas wants concrete evidence that the Jesus who apparently appeared to the disciples was the same Jesus who died on the cross. Not a ghost, not a lookalike trying to defraud somebody. And he says if he does not get it, he will not believe. 
So the Apostle John is inviting us in the first place to just consider what type of person Thomas is. This is not a gullible, ancient, religious, superstitious person. You can't just write off his story like that. But then there's a second thing that John challenges us on, and it's this. John challenges us to believe on the basis of the transformation that happened to doubting Thomas. Now let's read a bit more of the story in John chapter 20. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now notice the exact parallels between what Thomas demanded and what Jesus commands Thomas to do. For instance, Thomas had said to him, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, then Jesus says to him, put your finger here and see my hands. Thomas says to him, unless I place my hand into his side, Jesus says, put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas had said, I will never believe it. Now Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And then notice the complete transformation that happens to Thomas. This skeptic, this doubter, instantly becomes a believer. How does Thomas respond? Well, we read these words. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, it would be amazing, astounding, shocking if any man worships another man as God. But for a Jewish man to worship another man as God, unless that man is not God, that is the utter heights of blasphemy. Yet notice that Thomas is clearly professing his faith in Jesus, not just as his Lord and Master. He is worshiping him as God himself. But let's just ponder that for a moment. Doesn't that seem like kind of a big leap? I mean, okay, so a guy came back from the dead. That's, that's a big deal, no question about it. But that seems like a bit of a leap then to worship that man as God. Why, why wouldn't Thomas just say something like, oh, wow, okay, so you are alive. I was wrong. You know, sorry about that, Jesus. I take it back. I mean, to, he goes way farther than that. He worships him saying, my Lord and my God. So how did he get from being amazed that this happened to worshiping Jesus as God. Well, remember, as we just read, it was eight days after Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, then he appeared to Thomas. So what do you think Thomas was doing for those eight days? I mean, I have no doubt. He's, he's thinking about this all the time, and he's been with Jesus for the last three years. He's part of Jesus' inner circle. I'm sure he is thinking back over all the events that happened. Perhaps he remembered the time when Jesus just said to a paralyzed man, get up and walk. And suddenly this man just gets up and walks. Or, or another time when Jesus says to a man, your sins are forgiven. That's odd. How could he do that? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Why would Jesus be saying to someone, your sins are forgiven? Where does he get that kind of authority? Or another time maybe when Jesus was out in a storm with his disciples and he spoke to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. 
He's pondering on all these things. And now, as he looks into the eyes of Jesus, who he thought was dead, but is now standing right in front of him, Thomas's mind just explodes with the realization of who it is who stands before him. This is no mere man. This is not even the greatest teacher of all time. This is not even the greatest of all men. No, this man who stands before Thomas is otherworldly. This man is beyond the natural. This man is supernatural. And so Thomas suddenly realizes in that moment that he is in the presence of deity. And so he does what, of course, you should do if you stand in the presence of deity. He worships Jesus saying, my Lord and my God. So all of that to say, we must get rid of our bias, which just writes off this book and all of its stories and all of its claims. We must get rid of this bias that says, oh, those are ancient people. They were gullible, superstitious. They believed in everything. It's much more than us today. No, what I hope I've shown you right now is the ancient world was filled with people who were not inclined to believe these things. Thomas is the prototype, prototypical skeptic And with his story, we can see that even this great skeptic, this great doubter, came to believe. So those are the first two biases. Let's just take a few more minutes, much shorter on this final point now, to consider one final bias as we consider the rest of Thomas' story. And it's this. Consider our bias against God himself. Our bias against God himself. You see, it's right here. At this point in the story where where Thomas comes before Jesus and he worships him as God, it's right at this point that this whole topic of miracles actually becomes terrifying to us. Because you see, if miracles are true, if Thomas is right, then it means something. It means that we are not alone in the universe. We're not alone. To suddenly realize, like Thomas did, that God himself is among us, that's quite frankly very shocking. Uh, Author C.S. Lewis compares the shock of this to smaller feelings of shock that we may feel, like the shock that you have when suddenly the fishing rod pulls back on you, the shock that you feel when you're walking in the forest and you hear a twig break when you thought you were all alone, or the shock that you feel when your parents left you home for the first time alone, you and your sister, and after they're gone, suddenly your sister says to you, shh, be quiet. I think I just heard footsteps in the hallway. That's the shock you feel when you thought you were all alone in your space and you suddenly realize someone else has invaded your space. That's always a shocking thing. And to come face to face with a true miracle is to suddenly be shocked into the reality that there is a supernatural world, that there is a reality above and beyond the natural, that God himself is in our space, what we thought was our space, and he's been there all along. It's God who's pulling on the other end of the line. It's God who's in the forest with us. It's God who's in the hallway of our life, and he's been there all along. And to suddenly realize this, to realize that we are not alone, that's a hard thing to come to grips with. Because if we're not alone, if God himself exists, if he is with us in what we thought was our space, 
Well then, it means we've got to come to grips with who this God is and anything this God might require of us. And so I'm asking us to consider then this question. Could it be that our bias against miracles is actually a bias against God himself? When people get really honest, they admit that this is the case. There's a philosopher professor from New York University named Thomas Nagel, written tons of books, famous guy, and he says this, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, I appreciate his honesty, but notice, he's not forming his belief upon evidence. He's forming his belief upon bias. A bias that says, I don't want there to be a God because then I would have to come to grips with who this God is and anything this God might require of me. C.S. Lewis, whom I quoted earlier before he became a Christian, he admitted the exact same bias. He said, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I want to live in my space and I don't want there to be a God to interfere with me. So I am asking us to consider that maybe underneath all of our difficulties with miracles, there may simply be a bias against God. But it is right here when we come back to the story of Thomas that we find out some good news. That the God who has invaded our space, as if it was ever our space in the first place, is actually out seeking our good. Our good. See, John says he records this story for a reason. This is what we read in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's chosen one, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have life. So the claim of Christianity is that the reason why God took on human flesh and dwelled amongst us was not to come to destroy us, to terrify us, to shock us. No, he came to bring us life. Jesus came to forgive our sins, to rescue us out of our self-centered lives, to give us a new life, and then to bring us into an eternity with our creator in a new world where there is no more pain or suffering or death. And the message of Christianity is you can have that. This is the offer to you and I. You can have it, but you've got to give your life to Jesus. Like Thomas, you've got to bow the knee to him. It's not just a matter of affirming the facts of maybe of a, of a miracle. Notice that Thomas does not just come around and say, okay, I admit it, Jesus, I was wrong. You rose from the dead. That's not his response. And neither is his response to say, okay, well, you are the Lord. You are God. I admit it factually, intellectually. No. What does Thomas say to Jesus? He takes all these facts. He turns them into a personal profession of faith and worship And we read, as we read earlier, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The facts become personal for him. To find the life that God offers, we have to go beyond just affirming the existence of miracles. Like Thomas, we must bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, I give you my life. You are my master and my Lord. Take everything from me. 
It's all yours. You created me and gave me life. Forgive me. My life is yours. I believe that you can save me. And then look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? And then now, guess what? You and I appear in the Bible. That's right. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is looking down through the corridors of time to when people like you and I sitting here on this Easter Sunday, when people like you and I will not be given the exact experience of Thomas and the other disciples, but Jesus is pronouncing a blessing. A blessing he is saying to us that anyone after reading Thomas's story or hearing Thomas's story believes in Thomas's God and submits themselves to him, those are the people also who are blessed of God who receive this life based on the testimony of men like Thomas. So consider your biases. The message of Christianity, the great message of Easter is that God sent his son into this world to rescue you and me. Though our sins might be forgiven, we might be reconciled to our creator. We might receive the life that he wants to give us both now and through all of eternity. And the question then that we are confronted with at the end of the day on this Easter Sunday is will we bow the knee to Jesus? Will we give him our lives? I want to give you that opportunity right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to pray these words after me, giving your heart to Christ, then do that. They're not magical words, but if you say it from your heart, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Pray, Father in heaven, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for ignoring you, for living my life apart from you, for not worshiping you and giving thanks to you. Forgive my sins because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross and give me the new life that he promises to give as my risen Lord and God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.